Today's scripture comes from 1 Corinthians 15, verses 12 to 20. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there's no resurrection of the dead? But if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. You may be seated. Thank you. Here's the thing that preachers do sometimes. We're just going to get right into it. Preachers use hyperbole, okay? Exaggeration for effect. This is not new if you, this is not new to you if you've hung around me at all. Sometimes we say things like this. We say, this verse of scripture makes sense of the entirety of the problem in 1 Corinthians, which is what I'm saying today. <laughs> now, I'm going to argue that it's true. I'm going, to argue, I'm, going to, I'm going to argue my case with you. I think this text of Scripture makes sense of the entire problem of all the problems that we see so far in 1 Corinthians. If you are new with us today, welcome. This is week 43 in our study of Paul's letter to the church in Corinth. We call it 1 Corinthians. It's 40, week 43, not in a row, because I, I love all of you. We've seen some problems in their church. There have been some petty squabbles. There have been some lawsuits. There have been some sex scandals. There have been some problems in the church in Corinth. They've had some parties in pagan temples. They've had some divisive factions in their church based upon which preacher or leader they like the most. They've been rude and proud. They've been greedy and idolatrous. They've been drunk at the communion meal. They've had questions about how much do I really need to change my behavior when I become a Christian? They've fought over power and politics. They've turned the gifts of the Holy Spirit into status symbols. Now, in my mind, I just want, I want to be clear. That, I think, is a lot of horizontal stuff, right? That's all relational stuff. That's the way they relate to one another, the city around them. It's all relational stuff, horizontal. It's all very this-worldly. Why are they so consumed with the stuff here and now? That's my question. Why have they set their gaze on achieving things that don't ultimately matter and acquiring things that won't last and finding momentary pleasure in things that God forbids? Why? Why have they done this? I'll ask. Why have we? <laughs> Why do we? I love the letter of 1 Corinthians. I told you, year and a half ago when we started it, it's very helpful for us because of how we live. All the way through this whole letter, the whole time, Paul the Apostle has been bringing them back to Jesus, talking about the cross. Now he's talking about the resurrection. He's constantly bringing them back to a place where I think, if I'm honest, he's being very patient with them to try to get their thinking and their living and their believing and their faith all vertically aligned so that they understand the relationship they have with God in Christ. He's trying to help them to have an awareness of God in their life, a vertical dimension to their faith that then transforms the way they live that out horizontally. He keeps coming back to this time and time and time again. 
Paul knows this is true. Klein Snodgrass said, Rules never motivate ethical behavior. Awareness of God does. Rules are what we think will make people behave differently. I think rules for myself will make me behave differently. I also really like to break rules. Right? My awareness of God, though, that's when I'm able to walk on the straight and narrow. Not because I've made rules on my rules on my rules to make sure I never get in trouble. It's when I'm aware of God in my life. It's different. Paul's trying to get their eyes off of themselves so that they know that they are free to then fix their gaze on Jesus, on what he has done and how the gospel changes everything. That's what he's on about here. Do you know that you are free to fix your gaze on Jesus? You're free to do that because you're free from bondage to sin in Christ. You're free from that. You are no longer a slave. You are now free from the temptation to cling to the pleasures of this world, and you are now free to live your life in a way that only makes sense when the prevailing power of the gospel of Jesus is taken into account. And we've just spent the last three weeks talking about the centrality of the gospel, haven't we? Verses 1 through 11 in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We've been talking about the importance of the life and the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus and how the grace of God transforms us. But then we get to verse 12, where we're at today, and and here's where all of the problems in Corinth start to make sense to me. Verse 12 says, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If we preach Christ raised from the dead, how are some of you saying there is no resurrection of the dead? I think this verse makes sense of the whole Corinthian problem. Christ City, this might make sense of some of the problems in your life as well. See, some of the people in the Corinthian church were rejecting their own future bodily resurrection. They weren't rejecting Jesus' resurrection per se. They were rejecting their own future bodily resurrection. And we're going to talk about that lots over the next few weeks. Now, Paul doesn't tell us exactly why they were rejecting their own future bodily resurrection, but he is going to go to great lengths to logically show them the consequences of that rejection. He's going to show them how everything falls apart if you reject it. Right? And if I'm reading his tone correctly, I think he is like, I think he's gently apoplectic. I think he is apostolically annoyed. I think he's compassionately concerned, okay? And in something that I've felt at times, I think he is pastorally perturbed. (laughs) Why? Because he spent almost two years with them, teaching them about the physical, literal, historic, bodily resurrection of Jesus and how that then implicates their own, the implications of that for their own bodily resurrection. He spent a lot of time saying that, and now he's left, and they've written a letter to him, and he's going, why are they rejecting this? He just spent the first 11 verses of 1 Corinthians 15 reminding them what he himself received and what he preached to them and what then they received. The things of first importance, that Christ died and that he was buried and that he was raised, and that he appeared to a lot of people alive. 
He is going to great efforts here to be exceedingly clear that Jesus is alive. And then we get to verse 12, and he says, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Now there's lots of reasons that he may have thought they were rejecting the resurrection of their body, the future resurrection. There's lots of reasons. It could have been what one scholar calls standard pagan grounds, that it was just impossible or even undesirable. Because honestly, physical life is hard and there's lots of suffering involved. And why would I want that forever? Bodily existence. Mm. Got to remember, these are Greek folks as well. A lot of them are Greek. Another scholar says it could have been part of that Greco-Roman background where they, they thought like bodily resurrection was okay for the heroes of old, like Hercules and Achilles and Romulus but not for little old me. Another scholar says, could have just been the influence of Epicurean philosophy that denied the afterlife altogether. That's the people that say, just go out there and and enjoy what you can enjoy now because this is it. Maybe they had been influenced in their church by that thinking. Maybe it was the, the basic dualism of Greek thought, some of you philosophy majors. They just misunderstood what it meant to be spiritual. They thought to be spiritual meant that it was not physical. The point is, we don't actually know why they were denying it, and Paul doesn't tell us why. The Bible doesn't say why, so ultimately it doesn't really matter that much. The the reality is they were denying the bodily resurrection, and it was very clear that they did. And, and, And here's why that mattered. Here's the so what of all of that. I don't know why they were denying it, but they were. This is the so what. If you were convinced this life is your only chance at joy and pleasure, and then you die, you better seize the day. You better carpe diem that whole thing. If this is all that there is. If there is no future joy or pleasure for you, you better grab a hold of it while you can. Without a future resurrection, it's just death and the end. So living it up here and now, here and now, is very important to them. Because they wrongly thought that here and now was all that they had. They were overly concerned with temporal power, even in the church, because they thought too little of the glory that they've been promised in the resurrection of the dead, and they seemed unaware of their future promise in Christ, and how that means that they are going to rule cities and judge angels and be pillars in the temple of our God. They thought too little of what is to come. They were caught up in a competitive ladder-climbing status game, trying to gain worldly status rather than seeing that in Christ, the way up is down. That in Christ, the way to heavenly exaltation is through humility, not power. They were wrapped up in hedonistic, promiscuous immorality rather than seeing that in Christ, holiness is the way to joy. And that in the resurrection, we shall be made like him. They thought too much of their present moment and too little of their future promised in Christ. And that led them to being obsessed with things that don't ultimately matter and to being ignorant or even dismissive of the things that matter the most. See, if you deny the future bodily resurrection like they were denying in Corinth, then you have to try and get whatever you can out of this life because this is all you have. But... If you trust the promises of God in Scripture that we're going to be walking through over the next number of weeks in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 
If you trust that we have an eternal embodied existence in the new creation that awaits you and that it is infinitely greater than anything that you can gain here, you will then trust that your future hope outweighs your present pleasures by a magnitude that is simply incalculable. But do you believe it? See, life's good for Vancouver folks. Pretty easy. Pretty comfortable. We can go weeks without thinking about the future hope. Because life's good. We're eating well. We're living well. We're resting well. We're relating well. I don't know how much hope I need in the future because the present is good. Are we functional deniers of what is to come? See, the joy we have now is just a down payment on the joy that is to come. If you deny that there is anything to come or anything beyond the here and now, then you can't bank on that. You've got to get what's yours. That's why I think this text makes sense of the whole mess that they were in, and it makes sense of the questions they were asking and the sin that Paul had to confront. They had all of their hope anchored in the here and now because they wrongly thought that the here and now was all they had. But Paul says, if you deny your future bodily resurrection, you lose more than that. He's going to walk them through the logical thought of what happens if you're just deniers of the resurrection in general. Verse 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Verse 13. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. You're like, boom. Boom. That's it. That's the point. When you deny the future bodily resurrection of the dead, you are denying the resurrection of Jesus. And if you deny the resurrection of Jesus, Christianity is over. Let's walk away. John Stott said Christianity is in its very essence a resurrection religion. The concept of resurrection lies at its heart. If you remove it, Christianity is destroyed. If you deny the future bodily resurrection of the dead, you are denying the resurrection of Jesus. And if you deny the resurrection of Jesus, Christianity's over. The resurrection of Jesus is the linchpin of Christianity. You pull that pin, the wheels fall off the bus. Christianity is over. If you pull the resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus is the key block in the Jenga tower. We had some students over playing Jenga at our house. I watched one of them pull the key block out. I knew it was a key block. <laughs> he, he didn't seem to know it was a key block. He pulled the key block and the whole thing came falling down. You pull the resurrection of Jesus out, the whole thing crashes. It's over. The resurrection of Jesus is the cornerstone of the building. It is the foundation of the structure. It is the keystone at the apex of the masonry arch that makes the whole thing work. You pull it, it falls. Here's the image for you. Those who deny the future resurrection are cutting off the branch they're sitting on. (laughs) 
If you deny the resurrection, then Jesus has not even been raised. And if Jesus has not been raised, Paul says to the Corinthians, there are at least, at least seven terrible things you need to consider. It's my joy to bring those seven to you today. <laughs> Number one, verse 14. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. It's in vain. It's empty. It's vacuous. It's devoid of meaning. If Christ has not been raised, there is no gospel. Christianity is not based on the principle of resurrection, like it's some kind of moral lesson from a children's fairy tale. The whole point of this text, as we've looked at it over the last few weeks, and as I've preached for the last 10 years almost in this particular local church, the whole point of the gospel accounts is that it is a literal, historic resurrection. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see because he once was dead and is now alive. If you lose the resurrection, you lose the whole thing. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. And David Pryor said, Paul regards himself supremely as a preacher of the gospel. He's a preacher. He is therefore stating that his whole life has been a complete waste of time if there is no such thing as the resurrection. All those persecutions, sufferings, tribulations have been pointless. The obvious implication is that not only has his life's ministry been founded on a fraud and a hoax, but so has every other apostle's, indeed every other believer's. Number two, verse 14. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is in vain. Your faith is empty, vacuous, and devoid of meaning. This is the reality of climbing into that grand old tree just to sit there and, 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 and get your saw out and cut off the branch that you're sitting on. Whole thing comes crashing down. New Testament scholar N.T. Wright, uh, writer of big books on the resurrection, he says, why did Christianity arise and why did it take the shape it did? The early Christians themselves reply, we exist because of Jesus' resurrection. There is no evidence for a form of early Christianity in which the resurrection was not a central belief. Nor was this belief, as it were, bolted on to Christianity at the edge. It was the central driving force in forming the whole movement. So let's think about it like this. After Jesus was crucified, what did his closest friends, his disciples, what did they do? After Jesus was crucified, what did they do? They went back to fishing. You know why? Because he died on Friday on the cross, and they were very confused by that. And on Saturday, he was still dead, because dead people stay dead. And on Sunday morning, he was still dead. They were confused. But listen, the resurrection changes everything. If you take away the resurrection of Jesus, there's nothing left of Christianity. Number three. If Christ has not been raised, the apostles are liars. Look at verse 15, or 14, sorry. If Christ has not been raised, we are not, uh, even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. Okay? He, at this point, Paul is writing to the church in Corinth. I think he's laying it on pretty thick, and I like it. I like it. 
There is something here where he is trying to show them the absurdity of their argument if they reject their future bodily resurrection and how if they do that, they pull the resurrection out of the Jenga tower of Christianity and how the whole thing is going to fall apart. He's laying it on pretty thick. But you know who, 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 it's not just him kind of like protecting his reputation as an apostle. And he's not just worried about the other apostles who've clearly been lying if this is not true. You know what? You know what? It's very interesting to me that Jesus himself said he was going to be raised from the dead. And he said it in many different ways, and he said it to many different people. Told his disciples that his death and his subsequent resurrection was going to be the way, uh, it was going to be the, the way that the reality of the kingdom of God would spread beyond what they could comprehend. Dallas Willard said this, he said, the resurrection validated the reality and the indestructibility of what Jesus had preached and exemplified before his death. The enduring reality and openness of God's kingdom. See, the resurrection validates not only the atoning death of Jesus, but it validates the truth of everything he taught along the way. Everything he taught about the way of his kingdom. So if you take away the resurrection of Jesus, you might as well scrap all of his teaching too because it's worthless without the resurrection. Don't come to me with a golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Don't come to me with that if there's no resurrection. If there's no resurrection, I'm going to do what I want. I'm not going to care about you. Because if there's no resurrection, why bother? Don't, why bother with the teaching of Jesus? Oh, that, that, that's the thing that struck a nerve here? If there's no resurrection, why bother with the teaching of Jesus at all? Number four. Verse 17. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. Futile means worthless. It's useless. For those of you who really love practical things, your faith doesn't mean anything if there's no resurrection. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. This is a great word to the theological, theologically liberal so-called churches. They preach that Jesus' resurrection is a metaphor. It's a symbolic thing that can show us that we too can have a new start. It's not a literal historic resurrection. It's supposed to make you feel like you've got power to change. You too can change. I mean, Jesus didn't literally walk out of the tomb. It's just an idea. And that's what's taught there. That's hot trash. That's stinky, smelly, messing up the whole neighborhood trash. And it's taught in churches filled with false teachers and servants of Satan. You can email me about that one if you want to. Here's the problem with theologically liberal metaphorical resurrection. Here's the problem with it. I have literal sin that leads to literal death. I need a literal resurrection, resurrection to validate that Christ literally atoned for my sin upon the cross and literally offers me literal salvation. Don't come to me with a metaphorical 
resurrection. Don't come to me on my deathbed with a metaphorical resurrection. I want a physical, historical, bodily resurrected Christ holding my hand in the hospital. Come on. Man, I hate that stuff. What's the point? Which is actually the kind of the, the way that they now lead their churches, too, just so you know. The theological liberalism from 90 years ago in the seminaries then came into the theologically liberal churches that have embraced a metaphorical resurrection. They've embraced everything. There's, there's nothing remotely Christian about that, aside from the buildings they have. Number five. If Christ has not been raised, verse 17 says, you are still in your sins. If your faith if your faith is empty and it's futile and it's worthless, like we've already talked about, and is devoid of transformational content, then of course you're still in your sins. Again, from N.T. Wright in one of his big fat books on the resurrection, he says, if God has overcome death in the resurrection of Jesus, then the power of sin is broken. But if he hasn't, it isn't. If Jesus Christ was not raised from the dead then either he was not who he claimed to be or he was not accepted as a sufficient atoning sacrifice for our sin. But either way, if he's not risen, that means you and I are still carrying the full weight of all of our sin. We're carrying upon us, we have upon our shoulders the wrath of God for sin and we are still waiting for judgment for our sin. That's what's true if there's no resurrection. There's new, no new life in Christ. There's no forgiveness of sin apart from a Christ who has triumphed over death in his resurrection. If you lose the resurrection, you lose the whole deal. John Calvin wrote this like 500 years ago. He said, The cross of Christ only triumphs in the heart of believers over the devil and the flesh and over sin and sinners when their eyes are directed to the power of his resurrection. Listen, if the cross of Christ does not then have the vindication and the confirmation of its effectiveness in the resurrection of Jesus on the third day, it's just another guy who died on a cross under Roman rule. Do you realize that? Number six. If Christ has not been raised, then those who've already died in Christ, they're already gone. They're they're gone forever. Verse 17 and 18 says, If Christ has not been raised, then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Jesus is just another dead guru who adds some value to the world through his teaching of kindness and compassion. There's no future hope, even for the followers of Jesus who have already died. Like They may have lived for him in some kind of sense that they tried to follow his teaching, but without the resurrection, their faith is in vain. It is futile. It is empty. It is worthless. They are still under judgment for sin, which means their death leads to condemnation, not life. That's the, that's the logical flow of thought that he's working with here. Without the resurrection of Jesus, yeah. your dearly departed family and friends in Christ. Without the resurrection of Jesus, they're just dead. When in fact the scriptures teach us that they're presently with him. Seven, if Christ has not been raised, 
we have hope in this life only. Verse 19, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. This comes full circle to what I spent a lot of time with on the front end of our time together. It comes full circle to what I think is the fundamental problem that is plaguing the church in Corinth. They are not drawing from the well of their future hope. They are trying to get by with their hope in this life only. And it is sad. It is pitiable. They're like the homeless woman who died a few years ago in Oregon, who was begging for bread though she had $884,000 in the bank that she didn't know about. Wasn't accessing that account. She didn't know she'd received an inheritance of $884,000 and that it was in her bank account. She just thought she had nothing. So she kept living on the street and eventually died. If we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. See, the Corinthian church has all of their hopes anchored in the here and now because they thought the here and now was all they had. They did not know of their future promised inheritance in Christ. See, the story of the gospel is so much better than this. So much better than that. Look at the next verse. Look at verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. You should shake out all the discomfort that I gave you for the last 10 minutes. In fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. Come on. This changes everything. This reworks all the seven things I just went through. Let me show you. If Christ has not been raised and our preaching is in vain, that's the first one. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. Therefore, our preaching is powerful testifying to the magnificent glory and infinite worth of Christ, him crucified and risen and ruling and reigning over all things, preparing a place for us in eternity. Christian preaching is not in vain. Gospel is powerful. The second one, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is in vain. But in fact, Christ has been raised. Your faith is full and rich and gives meaning to every trial, every suffering, every experience because the faith you have is alive and transformative because of the resurrection of Jesus. Third one, if Christ has not been raised, the apostles are liars. Well, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. And their testimony has made it to the west coast of North America to the city of Vancouver 2,000 years after it happened. The good news of the death and the resurrection of Jesus is traveling from person to person all over the world and nation after nation are hearing the gospel and being saved. The apostolic witness is true and faithful. Fourth one, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. Well, I don't know if you know this, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. So I can be assured once and for all that Jesus finished the work that he died for my sin that he took my judgment and that now I presently, by his grace, stand in the presence of God, pardoned from my guilt and shame and every condemnation. If you're a follower of Jesus, that's true of you. If Christ has not been raised, then those who have already died, they're gone forever. 
But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. So those who died in Christ are with him now. If Christ has not been raised from the dead, we have hope in this life only. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, and our future hope is invading this present world when we live in the power of that resurrection. See, you were just thinking about going to work tomorrow morning. You're like, oh, wake up in the morning, make a coffee. Hmm. Mondays, right? (laughs) The future hope of the resurrection of Jesus Christ is invading your life by the reality that you are indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God and that you might be the next link in that chain of the gospel going from person to person to person all around the world. That you might be the answer to prayer that somebody has been looking for because Jesus is alive. See, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. That's why Paul showed up in Corinth the first time. It's why he's passionately defending the truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, because honestly, without the resurrection of Jesus, who cares? Honestly. I'll tell you, let me tell you something about my life before I became a Christian. I had a good time. Life was good for me. I know that other people have different stories. I'm just telling you, my life was pretty good. I had some problems, like most people do, but it was fun. I mean, most of the problems I had were because of the fun I had. You know what I'm saying? (laughs) If that's all you're looking for, you don't need the resurrection of Jesus. Who cares? Honestly. C.S. Lewis has a great line. He's like talking about Christianity making him happy. It's like, I didn't need Christianity to make me happy. I had a bottle of port to do that. It's true. It is. My life was really good before I became a Christian. I was super lost, and I look back on it now, and I'm like, how did I even get out of bed? Without the resurrection of Jesus, who cares? Without the resurrection, take no risks for God. Refuse to suffer. Find hope in your comfort. Without the resurrection of Jesus, find hope in your expensive car, in your real estate portfolio, in your retirement savings, in your health, and your beauty, and your basic middle-class comforts living in the city of Vancouver. Because without the resurrection of Jesus, we have hope only in this life. Stop being generous. Stop caring about other people. Start indulging yourself. Withhold from yourself no temporal pleasure. Because if there is no life beyond this and there's no hope beyond this life, oh my gosh, you need to change the way you're living. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. Can you imagine what would happen in this community of people, this local church, if our belief in the resurrection of Jesus just started to invade every area of our lives? What would it look like? See, if we believe in the resurrection of Jesus, we are free to take risks for God. We are free to suffer for God. We are free to give up our comfort in our middle-class spirituality. Because we know that we have a future hope that infuses this life with a different kind of power. It means our words carry weight that we would have never thought before. If, if, if you 
believe in the resurrection of Jesus. What does that say to you about your prayer life? He is alive. See, if the resurrection is true, we can cultivate a resilient faith. We can live with a transformative kind of generosity. We can have true love for our neighbors. We can have true love for our enemies. We can deprive ourselves of some of the creature comforts, and it will be good for us. Because our temporal pleasures pale in comparison to the fullness of joy set before us in an eternity with God. Dear Christian, you are not to be pitied. Don't pity yourself. You've got the resurrection life of Jesus Christ in you. You are not to be pitied as though you only have hope in this life. You are to be seen in light of the truth of your eternity. That you have an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, and kept in heaven for you because by God's power you are being guarded through faith for a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. But without the resurrection, walk away. That's how much this matters. And I think, like the church in Corinth that was all jacked up. I mean, our church isn't that jacked up, right? We're we're, we're okay. But like that church, I think this makes sense. If we think too much of this world now and too little of what is to come, We're going to scrap and claw for everything we can get here. And at the end of our lives, we may recognize that we wasted our time because we succeeded at the wrong thing. Would you stand with me as we respond?